All right, everybody, let's get back to our places. We gave you our PG-13 announcement. So if you're here, it's because you want to be. Praise the Lord for that. You ready to get to work? We got a lot to cover today. Um, you know, the days in which we live, we have seen a heightened awareness to the issue of mistreatment. And whether you agree with a particular group or not, and you have to admit that we are all tuned in to what's going on around us. So there are those that promote Black Lives Matter, and the idea is the mistreatment by law enforcement of young African Americans. Then, as a result, now there's Blue Lives Matter, where a lot of people think there's mistreatment of our police officers by any number of different people. There's a whole Twitter thing with hashtag MeToo, where women are pointing out the sexual abuse and mistreatment from men. And I might add that I think that there's an abuse by the media of facts in order to promote political agendas. I mean, we're all tuned in to different levels of abuse and mistreatment, aren't we? And again, whether you agree with some of those or maybe you've been victimized by some of those, these issues of awareness, certainly, they're important to us. And they should be. We're concerned about human rights. Well, the series that we're in is about church history, and we're calling it the prophecy of history. And we're looking at Revelation chapters 2 and 3 primarily, where there are letters written to seven churches. And there's three applications of Scripture. So historically, these are seven literal churches that existed in the region called Asia Minor. And that would be kind of modern-day Turkey for us today. Uh, there's an inspirational application that would be seven types of churches with seven types of problems and situations going on that any church today or anybody today could find a church situation that relates to what you're going through. And then there's a doctrinal application, and that really is the thrust of what we're studying together for these couple of months. And the doctrinal application of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 is seven periods of church history, where from the time of the apostles until the rapture of the church, God breaks down this history of about 2,000 years into seven distinct periods of time, in which each period of time of what for us today is history, at the time it was written in 90 AD, it was prophecy. And so we call it the prophecy of history. And so last week, if you were with us, we looked at the first church in Revelation 2 and verse 1 in the church of Ephesus, and we saw that the Ephesus church was the purposed church. But today we're going to look at the second church, and that starts in verse number 8, and it's the church of Smyrna. And this is our title for today's message. Smyrna is the persecuted church. Smyrna is the persecuted church. And what we're going to look at today is a period of time in history when believers in Jesus Christ were, and we use this term very lightly, mistreated. That is not nearly a strong enough term. They were mistreated in ways that we can barely fathom. So I want us to read together. I'll read starting in verse number 8. There's only four verses. Follow along. 
And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we do our best to understand what you're communicating in the context of what we now understand to be a period, a brutal period in time and history, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is trying to say to the churches even today. I pray that through these stories of suffering, that we will not only value the freedoms we have, but develop some courage to take some stands. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that just as this poor suffering church received only a commendation, only encouragement from you, that that would be our case. Lord, we desperately need to understand these things so that we can be best equipped to do what you'd have us to do. So I pray that that would be what your spirit would teach us today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to start. We have a general outline we'll follow throughout this whole series, and these are common things written to every church. The first is the calling of the church. The church is called Smyrna, and that name Smyrna literally means, these are your blanks, bitterness and death. Bitterness and death. So let me give you just a little bit of history because it's good to understand this. Smyrna was a city that was about 35 miles north of the city of Ephesus on the Aegean Sea coast. It was a wealthy city that would have rivaled Ephesus in its beauty and in its commerce. Uh, it was a free city. That means it did not necessarily have to be um, a ward of the Roman government, but yet it freely then chose to give full allegiance to the Roman Empire. And as a result of doing that, the city of Smyrna was filled with pagan temples and the worship of these pseudo-gods, such as Apollo, Asclepia, Aphrodite, Cybele, Zeus, as well as various emperors. You know, the scripture is silent on the establishment of the church in Smyrna. It is fair to consider that the believers of the church of Ephesus uh, began the church that's in Smyrna. The city of Smyrna, the ancient city, was destroyed by an earthquake in 178 A.D., but it was quickly rebuilt. It was made one of the few Asian cities that withstood the Turkish attacks, and it was among the last to fall to the Muslims. It was a cultural center. It helped, uh, it survived um, spurring the, and spurring on the Renaissance. Uh, Smyrna today, and we have a map actually for you, is the modern city in Turkey called Izmir. Izmir. You can kind of see the connection. Izmir, Smyrna, okay? That's literally the same location. It is Turkey's third largest city with a population in excess of 3 million people. So it exists today. Uh, doctrinally speaking, the church of Smyrna represents the church from about, and these 
you know, these dates are going to have some overlap, but uh, it's not, you know, cut with a knife from about 200 to about 325 A.D. So it's about 200 A.D. to about 325 A.D. And as we're going to see, there was much bitterness and death going on at that time. Uh, the origin of the name Smyrna literally comes from a word you'd be familiar with in the Bible, and that's myrrh, myrrh. So Smyrna comes from myrrh, and myrrh is a spice. It's an ointment that was associated with death. Uh, Jesus, we have this story in John chapter 12 and verse number 3 where we, it says, Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard. Literally, that is myrrh. Uh, the same Greek word, myrrh. Okay, an ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. And if you remember the story, then Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, who held the bag of money, said, hey, why'd we waste that ointment? Why didn't we sell it and give it to the poor? And then Jesus said in verse number seven, let her alone, notice, against the day of my burying, has she kept this? So that's what myrrh is. It's a costly ointment, a perfume that gives off a good smell. And so if you study in the scriptures, and we don't have time to do it right now, this idea of a sweet-smelling savor, and you run the references in the Bible to the things that offer unto God a sweet-smelling savor, what you find is those are burnt offerings. Those are sacrifices unto the Lord in the Old Testament. Where some innocent animal dies, and is burned, and that act pleases the Lord. So the believers of Smyrna literally find themselves becoming burnt offerings to God. Unless that sounds a little gruesome to you, Psalm 116 and verse 15 reminds us that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. So that's how the church is called. Number two, Jesus Christ is characterized in each of the seven churches, and in this case, Jesus Christ is characterized as proof of life after death. Amen? Amen. He's presented to us in his resurrected form. The introduction is different for each church, and I want you to understand that for each church and for each situation, their, their situation differs according to their needs and the spirit of the age and what's going on in their world. But regardless of what the need is, that's how Jesus is presented to that church. In other words, regardless of where you're at in your life, Jesus Christ is the answer. Whatever your problem is, Jesus Christ is the answer. Whatever you're going through, Jesus Christ is the answer. Here he's presented, it says, These things saith the first and the last. Well, that's how he was presented as God Almighty in chapter number 1. And then he goes on and he says, which was dead and is alive. We just sang about it. Jesus Christ, his introduction, is a reminder to the church in Smyrna that death is not the end. There is more life. And this offers comfort. It offers comfort to those that are suffering because he can relate. You know that's true. You know that if you're suffering in a particular area, that you receive the most amount of comfort from people who have suffered in that same particular area. 
and they can share with you the way that they have received comfort. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 talks exactly about that very thing. When we receive comfort for the things God does in our lives, then we can take that comfort and share it with others who are going through the same kind of trial. Is anybody going to really debate the fact that Jesus Christ was the ultimate example of mistreatment, unjust suffering, even unto death? Yet he's alive, amen? He's not still dead. So that's how he is presented. He's characterized as proof that there is life after death. Number three, we're moving right through this outline, aren't we? The church's condition. You'll find this in each of the churches. In this case, the church's condition is very simply, in a word, suffering. Suffering. You see, the first real Christians... The witnesses that they put forth, I mean, these guys were fanatics in every sense of the word. They lived like sheep. They prayed like saints. They preached like lions. And they died like flies. Most of us have no idea what this kind of a life is like. But what I want us to do before we get into some of the stories is to start by remembering that there is a doctrine of suffering that the Bible teaches. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Sounds a little awkward, doesn't it? Like we would rejoice in such things, but with the right perspective. A couple chapters earlier, 1 Peter 2 and verse 21, For even hereunto were ye called, church, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. And without having to go through the story of Christ's sufferings, you're aware of it. Let me just remind you of Isaiah 53, the prophecy of his coming and suffering. In verse number 3, it says of Jesus, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He understands. Paul said it this way in his life and experiences. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more as a laborer of Christ. Understand what he went through. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. This guy had nothing but perils. In weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides those things that are without, all of these things the world put on Paul. Besides all those things, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. 
And today we have shepherds that can't even bear up under the care of the churches, let alone all of those external perils. Somehow, amazingly, the Apostle Paul, arguably the greatest Christian that ever lived, had this attitude in Philippians 1, starting in verse 21. For to me, for to, me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having noticed a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Theoretically, we may say amen. But when people, if they were to ever come at you like they came at Paul, like they came at Smyrna, well... That's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Paul understood those things. Paul experienced those things. And Paul understood that if I'm alive, my life is Jesus Christ. I live to be able to represent him and to serve you. But if you're just asking me, take me out. Because I know what's on the other side. And at that point, all the suffering is done. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 2, verse number 8. He says, we're characterizing the church, right? I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. Then he puts in parentheses, but thou art rich. So this church was truly poor in the world's sense. And God said, no, you don't understand. You're rich. Which means that the church of Smyrna becomes the photo negative of the church of Laodicea who believes in the world's view, certainly we are rich. And God says, wait a minute, you don't even understand. You're poor. You're poor. It says in verse number 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Ten days. And what we find as we chart this through history is that we find, and this is letter A of your notes, there are ten official Roman persecutions. And they are dictated out via the emperors of the empire of Rome. Roman persecutions. You say, why Roman? I mean, did you arbitrarily assign that interpretation? No, of course not. You just need to look at biblical history. You need to look at secular history. All you need to do is compare and understand that Rome is the one who is in power. When all this happened, Rome, by the way, is the last biblically prophesied Gentile world power. You take your time. You go back to the book of Daniel. You go back to the image where he had the head of gold and, and the chest of silver and it works its all the way down. You go into the four beasts that come out of the sea in the book of Daniel. You'll find that those are defined for you as Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And that, that Roman world Gentile domination is the one that will be present when Messiah the Prince shows up. His first coming or his second coming? Yes, the answer is yes. Because there is no other world dominating force according to the biblical record after Rome. You need to understand that. So Rome is the political power certainly historically at this time governed by satanic Selfish emperors who can't tolerate any competition. 
That's why it said in verse number 10, Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Well, the devil is going to use the emperors <laughs> to see that that's what happens. So in your notes, why did the emperors persecute the Christians? Why did they do that? I asked myself this question as I was looking through this again. Why did they do that other than, you know, you could say, well, you know, demonically motivated, okay. But understand what was going on back in Roman culture back then. There were many gods, right? The Roman gods, you've studied mythology. Jupiter, Juno, Diana, Venus, Mars, Mercurius, Neptunus, Apollo. All these gods, small g, named after all the planets and the stars, right? Each god had his or her own image, and the people worshipped the images. These Christians show up, and they believe that there is one God, capital G, who rules over all the gods. And he tolerates no image whatsoever. Well, that was kind of throwing a wrench in their system, wasn't it? In fact, the typical Roman citizen led by the leaders, they were labeled as atheists because they wouldn't bow down and worship the images of all these gods. You know, Roman dictators, they were quite the arrogant crowd. They really enjoyed people calling them Lord, calling them a god. And they had statues of their own, and people bowed down to worship these emperors as well. And you know, a true Bible-even Christian would never do that. They refused to do it, which enraged the emperors. Uh, you need to understand that at this time in history, Christianity was spreading throughout the empire so rapidly that it became a threat. Now, it was not actually a political threat because true Bible believers don't do that. But yet, they had to be eliminated. So thought the political leaders, which is not an uncommon move even today. So to give you an idea of how enraged the emperors despised alternate opinions, let me give you an example. Under a man named Valerian, we'll look at him again in a second, he's the eighth emperor of these ten official Roman persecutions. I have a quote that's recorded. Oh, what tongue is able to express the fury and madness of the tyrant's heart? Talking about the emperor Valerian. Now he stamped, he stared, he ramped. He fared as one out of his wits. His eyes like fire glowed, his mouth like a boar foamed, his teeth like a hellhound grinned. Now not a reasonable man, but a roaring lion he might be called. Then they quote him. Kindle the fire, he cried, of wood make no spare. Hath this villain, referring to believers, deluded the emperor? Away with him, away with him. Whip him with scourges, jerk him with rods, buffet him with fists, brain him with clubs. Jesteth the traitor with the emperor? Pinch him with fiery tongs, gird him with burning plates. Bring out the strongest chains and the fire forks and the grated bed of iron on the fire with it. Bind the rebel hand and foot, and when the bed is fire hot, on with him, roast him, broil him, toss him, turn him. On pain of our high displeasure, do every man his office, O ye tormentors. The Emperor Valerian. Unthinkable as it sounds. This is the documented history of Smyrna. So, I'm just going to give you a snapshot of some of the persecutions under each of the emperors. 
Nero was the first, 64 to 68 A.D. You know, the legend is, is that Nero fiddled while Rome burned, right? Whether that's true or not, the truth is Rome did burn, and Nero, negligent, I don't know, took the opportunity of the destruction of Rome to blame it on the Christians, to enrage the population against them, and to excuse himself. Nero is the one who, was, who would have had believers sewn up in skins of wild beasts and then left to the dogs to be eaten. He had others dressed in skins of wax, fixed to trees and set on fire in his gardens in order to illuminate them. The emperor Domitian, 81 to 96 A.D., St. John, the apostle who wrote the Revelation, was known to have been boiled in oil before he was banished to Patmos. If there was any famine or pestilence or earthquake afflicted any of the Roman provinces, well, the blame was laid on the Christians. Uh, Trajan, the emperor in 112 to 117 AD, uh, there were many who were crucified, crowned with thorns and spears run into their sides in imitation of Christ's passion. You see, the act of such nature is mocking God. Uh, we're going we're gonna to murder these Christians in the same way that their God, Jesus Christ, was murdered. You know that such an act is as satanic as it possibly can be. The fourth emperor, Marcus Aurelius, 161 to 180, believers were required to pass with already wounded feet over thorns, nails, sharp shells, etc. Others were scourged until their sinews were, and veins were laid bare. Uh, they were burned in the open marketplace. They were pressed to death with weights, brains dashed out with clubs, thrown from a precipice, and beheaded. Red-hot plates of brass were placed upon the tenderest parts of their bodies. Suspended from pieces of wood and exposed as food for wild beasts. Their lives, as they were hiding for their lives, or their burial places, are in a place called the catacombs that existed under Rome. By the way, if you make a trip to Rome, you can tour the catacombs. They won't give you this story if, if you go, but you can go. I have been there. The next one is Septimus Severus from 202 to 210. If we were lining them up with the church ages, we would say this is the beginning of Smyrna. Again, there's no firm line. Roughly, we're putting these dates on these church periods. But at this time of Severus, you need to understand that the church at this time is growing rapidly. I mean, literally, there are Christians everywhere. You might think to the contrary. No, it, it wasn't that way. In fact, it is said that if the Christians had collectively withdrawn themselves from all of the Roman territories, the empire would have been greatly depopulated. Praise the Lord. Believers were being killed by the thousands. But the more that they would kill, the more that they would multiply. So much so that by the time Constantine shows up, now that'll be the subject of next week with Pergamus in 313 A.D., he had to figure out a way to get the Christians to join up with Rome so that he could shut their mouths. You say, where do you get these stories? There's a book that every Christian should read called Fox's Book of Martyrs. 
For example, even women placed in a scalding bath and after having continued there a considerable time would have her head struck off with a sword. The next one from 235 to 238, Maximus the Thracian, he tried to exterminate all Christians from the province. One Christian minister was thrown into the Tiber River, which is the river that goes through Rome. Another was tied to a wild horse and dragged until he expired. Numberless Christians were slain. Here's the key. Without trial, buried indiscriminately in heaps, 50 or 60 being cast together into a pit. The seventh is Decius, 250-251 A.D. Notice that while the heathen temples began to be forsaken, Christian churches thrived. We say, man, we would like revival like that. Really? Do you really want revival like that? They paid full price, didn't they? A man named Chrysostom, he was put into a leather bag together with a number of serpents and scorpions and in that condition thrown into the sea. A different man named Peter was beheaded for refusing to sacrifice to Venus. Another was ordered to be stretched upon a wheel by which all his bones were broken, and then he was sent to be beheaded. Alexander and Epimachus were beaten with staves, torn with hooks, and at length burnt in the fire. Trypho and Respicius Their feet were pierced with nails. They were dragged through the streets, scourged, torn with iron hooks, scorched with lighted torches, and then finally beheaded. Women, again, weren't immune from these tortures. They were scourged, burnt with red-hot irons, torn with sharp hooks, laid on live coals, intermingled with glass. And then after all that, just carried back to prison, where eventually their bodies just gave out. This Emperor Valerian that we quoted a little earlier, 257 to 259, he said that those who refused to sacrifice to idols, they were to be treated with all barbarous indignities imaginable. He would take some and fasten their feet to the tail of a bull. And upon a signal given, the enraged animal was driven down the steps of the temple by which the worthy martyrs Brains were dashed out. Aurelian, 270 to 275 A.D., tells the story in that time of a woman named Zoe. She's the wife of a jailer. That particular jailer had been given the charge to care for other martyrs, and Zoe was converted to Jesus Christ by those Christians. Praise the Lord. But as a result... She was hung upon a tree with fire of straw lighted underneath her. And when her body was taken down, it was thrown into a river with a large stone tied to it. In 286 A.D., there was a legion of of Roman soldiers. Literally, there were 666 men in this legion, all Uh, non-Christians. This legion, they, they were required to swear an allegiance and an oath to help the extermination of Christianity in the region of Gaul. Uh, This legion refused to do either, and the emperor ordered the legion 
to be decimated in this fashion. Every tenth man was to be selected from the rest and put to the sword. And those that remained, the 90% that remained, were still inflexible. And then the emperor ordered a second decimation. One in every ten men were to be taken and killed with the sword. And so it went on and enraged also ultimately this, this legion who remained. They continued to stand firm and say, we're not interested. So the emperor was so outraged by their perseverance, he just decided to kill them all with the sword. These weren't even believers. These were just sympathetic to the believers. A man named Quentin stretched with pulleys until his joints were dislocated. His body was then torn with wire scourges and boiling oil and pitch poured on his naked flesh. Lighted torches were applied to his sides and his armpits. And after he was thus tortured, he was remanded back to prison and died of the barbarities that he suffered. 287 A.D. Diocletian the 10th. Diocletian, and then followed up at some point in his reign by a man named Galerius, 303 to 324 A.D. Without question, the worst, can you believe it, of all. The time under Diocletian is referred to literally as the era of the martyrs. I began to read and to record and to put down these accounts for you this week. And by the time I got to Diocletian, and the endless pages of records, I got to tell you, I couldn't take it anymore. I, I, I can't, I, I could have just stood here and told you the stories of Diocletian. They hoped to terminate Christianity, but they couldn't. There's a quote that's said to be given by a man named Tertullian, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's what we see in the time of Smyrna. They tried to kill them, by shedding their blood and to scare the others away, but, you know, that didn't really work. As we'll see moving forward in church history, what really works is to get the church and the world to marry up together and to just kind of agree that the world is okay. But when the world is out and out in affront to your life and to your, and your health and your welfare and your family and your very being, well, you know what you're going to do? You're going to get some resolve. And you're going to stand, and you're going to say, well, you can take my body, but my soul belongs to Jesus. And you will stand. And you know what you will do? Because you will be incensed, because you are a living, breathing human being and born again. You know what you will do? Before they take your body, you'll tell everybody you know. And you will multiply this life of Jesus Christ so many times over on other people, so you can kill me, but there'll be 50 more waiting. That's what they were doing, even in the time of Diocletian. During Diocletian, they seized all the sacred books and committed them to flames. They leveled all the churches to the ground. They rendered all Christians outlaws. All Christians were apprehended and imprisoned. And in fact, similar to Nero, the imperial palace was set on fire just so that the Christians could be blamed. The homes of the Christians were set on fire. Many families died in the flames. Others had stones fastened about their necks and driven into the sea. Christians who refused to recant their Christianity 
were brought into the amphitheater. I think we have a photo. This is a famous photo called The Last Prayer, a famous French artist. The Last Prayer. So the Christians were brought into the amphitheater, the Roman Colosseum. Several beasts were let loose upon them, but notice this. None of the animals that were let loose would touch them. The keeper then brought out a large bear that had destroyed a man earlier that very day. But that bear and a fierce lioness that were let loose both refused to touch the prisoners. You see, it's interesting. Man is really the only creation that will defy God. Well, since the emperor couldn't control the behavior of the beasts, he could control the behavior of his soldiers. And so they were ordered to kill them with the sword. A man named Romanus, scourged, put to the rack, his body torn with hooks, his flesh cut with knives, his face scarred, his teeth beaten from their sockets, and his hair plucked up by the roots. After all that, he was sentenced to be strangled. Another man named Peter, a eunuch, was laid on a gridiron and broiled over a slow fire until he expired. Vincent was racked, his limbs dislocated, flesh torn with hooks, laid on a gridiron, which not only had a fire under it, but spikes on the top, which ran into his flesh. These torments neither destroying him nor changing his resolutions. He was remanded to prison, confined in a small, loathsome, dark dungeon, strewed with sharp flints and broken pieces of glass where he died in 304 A.D. You tired of hearing these stories yet? I am. I really am. Jesus Christ writes a letter to a church in Smyrna. And he says in verse number 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Ten official Roman persecutions. Fear none of those things, he said. You know, Jesus is the one who said, don't fear the one who can destroy your body. Remember that? But rather fear the one who can destroy both body and soul where? In hell. Well, all wasn't wonderful at this time. Letter B in your notes, the beginnings of heresies. Because in verse 9, he also says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So this is the time of history when people begin to teach that the church replaces Israel. They say that they are Jews but they are not. Why would you teach that the church replaces Israel, that Israel is done, that all of the Old Testament promises given to Israel, the teaching would go, are just spiritual, and the real inheritance now passes to us? Can you imagine why they would promote such a teaching? As a famous preacher I followed once said, if it doesn't make sense, there's a buck in it. 
All the physical promises, all of the land, all of the inheritance that were physically, literally given to the nation of Israel now, they want it. They say that they are Jews, and they are not. At this time began the seedbed of what is now understood to be amillennial or postmillennial teaching. Millennium is the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. The letter A in the front means without. So the word moral, you know what the word moral means? Amoral means without morals, right? Uh, how about this one? The word muse, to muse about something means to think about something. Amuse, you want to amuse yourself? Turn your brain off. That's literally what it means. Amillennial means there is no such thing as a millennium. That we're going to bring in the kingdom ourselves. It's just us. Christ's return, he's not literally returning. He returns into your heart when you receive him. Postmillennialism is kind of a, a, a fragmented subset of the amillennial movement, which, by the way, is promoted greatly by those who say we're going back to the roots of the Reformation. We'll get to all that eventually. The postmillennial teaching is, is that the church literally ushers in the great kingdom of Christ, and when it's all said and done, Jesus shows up and says, hey, thanks, good job, guys. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. It's a pre-millennial return of Jesus Christ. This world is getting worse and worse and worse and worse until it's all over and there's nothing, and Jesus Christ is going to return and make it right and then usher in a 1,000-year kingdom. The Bible's clear about those things. We understand that there's a difference between the physical, literal kingdom of heaven and the spiritual kingdom of God. We partake in the spiritual kingdom of God as the church of Jesus Christ. Israel had a literal kingdom of heaven. When Jesus Christ shows up for his 1,000-year reign, the two then and only then become one. The spiritual and the physical become one together. But these people wanted to make them all one now so that those of us participating as they would think themselves, participating in the spiritual kingdom, are allowed physical wealth in order to spread the kingdom. See how it works? Can you imagine what book it is of the Bible that Paul wrote to correct these heresies? You know what letter Paul wrote? He wrote the book to the, say it with me, Romans, where in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he makes it very clear God's view of the nation of Israel, past, present, and future. And God is not done with the nation of Israel. So all Israel shall be saved. They will return when the time of the Gentiles has come to an end. Blindness in part has come upon them, but they will come back. Interesting, the book of Romans tells that. Well, some of the people who are noted for starting these things, the most notable, and you will hear more about this next week, is a man named Origen. He's from Alexandria, Egypt. Arguably, Origen is the greatest heretic of all time. He spiritualized the scriptures. He understood them allegorically. He never believed them, and he changed them at will. He started a school, imagine that, in Alexandria of Egypt. And his school was to study the scriptures that he changed. He wrote a six-column Old Testament, like six different versions of the Old Testament called the Hexapla. 
And the fifth column of Origen's writings of the Hexapla is the origin of the document that if you've been studying theology in schools, you've heard of something called the Septuagint, which would be considered to be the Greek language translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Many, many, many churches and schools refer to that as authoritative. It's nothing more than Origen's fifth column of his Hexapla. A man named Cyprian of Carthage, again, North Africa, 250 to 258, near Alexandria, a disciple of Origen. He said that the church was built on Peter. He said Peter was in Rome. He said the Roman church was not Satan's seat, but rather it was just the chair of Peter. He said that the Roman church was the fountain of unity and the mother of the Catholic church. He said this, quote, By the help of the water of the new birth, the stain of my former life was washed away. Really? Is that how you got your new birth? With water? Pamphilus, 250 to 309, he continued origin school, and he established a large library of his works. Eusebius, sometimes referred to as the father of church history, he admired origin. He idolized the emperor Constantine and made him out to be a god. Eusebius is the one who filled an order for Constantine of 50 Bibles from the works of Origen. And here's the tricky part, because we don't really know. These guys also said some good things. These guys also did some good things. In fact, a lot of these guys were martyred as well. But here's the tricky part. The fact that some of these men were actually martyred by the Roman emperors only served to reinforce their non-biblical teachings because what people did was they began to take everything that was said by these fallible men as authoritative, even more authoritative than the Scriptures. And so it, it began to reinforce this idea and begin this idea that we have the writings of the church fathers And the church father's writings are on par with and maybe even supersede the writings of the scriptures. Because these men paid the ultimate price, because their blood was shed, because they believed, but yet they began heresies, people afterward took everything they said without comparing them to the scriptures and began to elevate them to that level of authority and they never should have done that. Well, let's... Turn the page. Y'all ready? Take a deep breath. Number four, the church's celebration. Let's talk about rewards. Verse number 11. He that overcometh. Let's look at some good guys. (laughs) Novation. He was fundamental regarding salvation and biblical authority. He didn't get mixed up in any of that stuff. He broke from the Roman church and he joined the group called the Montanists over two main issues, the one being biblical authority, and the other one is restoring fellowship to those who denied Christ in persecutions. Can you imagine? We told you stories of people who didn't deny. Don't you know there were people that did? I mean, under those levels of tragedy and torture, you know there are going to be people who are going to recant. To say, What did Job say? Skin for skin. Everything a man has, he'll give for his life, Right? And so a lot of people did recant their faith, and they would have been ostracized by the church of the believers saying, man, you're a compromiser. But this guy, Novation, said, man, come on. 
Let's restore fellowship with these people. Manny, Manetians, the people that followed him. This is a movement that began in Persia and spread to Syria and North Africa and Europe. Again, Christianity is spreading like wildfire, and these are some of the guys who are causing it to happen. Fundamental regarding salvation and the dual nature of the believer. Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, having come to Smyrna, he wrote to the church at Rome, exhorting them not to use means for his deliverance from martyrdom, lest they should deprive him of that which he most longed and hoped for. Here's his quote. Now I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things, so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me, be it so, only may I win Christ Jesus. And even when he was sentenced to be thrown to the beast, such as burning desire that he had to suffer, that he spake, what time he heard the lions roaring, he was heard saying this, I am the wheat of Christ. I'm going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found purebred. Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was captured and the proconsul, by the proconsul, and, and he was urged, swear and I will release thee, reproach Christ, to which he answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Some of us go to work and can't stand for Christ just because somebody's telling a dirty joke. Victor of Marseille. Remaining still inflexible, his courage was deemed obstinacy. Being by order stretched upon the rack, he turned his eyes towards heaven and prayed to God to endue him with patience, after which he underwent the tortures with most admirable fortitude. After the executioners were tired with inflicting torments on him, he endured them to the point of their weariness. He was conveyed to a dungeon. In his confinement, he converted the jailers named Alexander, Felician, and Longinus. Timothy, a deacon of Mauritania, being apprehended as a Christian, was carried before Orionus, the governor of Thebius, who, knowing that he had the keeping of the Holy Scriptures, commanded him to deliver them up to be burnt, to which he answered, Had I children, I would sooner deliver them up to be sacrificed than to part with the Word of God. Mora, his wife, tenderly urged him for her sake to recant. But when the gag was taken out of his mouth, instead of consenting to his wife's entreaties, he greatly blamed her mistaken love and declared his resolution of dying for the faith. There's other stories of people refusing deliverance. These are the overcomers of Smyrna. At Utica, a most terrible tragedy was exhibited. 300 Christians were, by the orders of the proconsul, placed round a burning lime kiln. A pan of coals and incense being prepared, they were commanded to either sacrifice to Jupiter or to be thrown into the kiln. 
unanimously refusing, they bravely jumped into the pit and were immediately suffocated. You know what this is, don't you? This is the literal application of Hebrews 11, 35 to 39, where it says, Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Heaven is worthy. This world is not worthy of such behavior. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in the dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, receive not the promise in this life. These are the Christians of Smyrna, the overcomers. They earn some rewards, many rewards, two of which I'll show you. One, a crown, letter A, a crown. It says, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Church, please understand, God crowns his children amidst the splashing of blood, the roaring of flames, and the howling of wild beasts. You know, we do right in our nation when we honor our soldiers, especially the fallen, having given the ultimate sacrifice. Do you think that our God honors any less the fallen soldiers of the cross of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us there are five different crowns to be earned, and today we're not studying those. This one is frequently referred to as the martyr's crown. Stephen, you'll refer to the story in Acts chapter 7, the deacon of the church of Jerusalem, the preacher. He becomes the first martyr of the Christian church in Acts chapter 7. The name Stephen literally means crown, the first martyr. And all or any crowns that we might earn as a result of our faithful overcoming, you know what they're for, right? So that we can give them back to Jesus Christ when we meet him. Revelation chapter 4, the four and twenty elders fell down before him that sat on the throne and worshiped him that lived, liveth forever and ever. And what did they do? And cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Listen, you do not want to be that guy that shows up to that party without a gift. You don't want to be that guy. These overcomers received a crown and these overcomers also received some comfort. That's letter B. It says... You'll not be heard of the second death. Please pay attention to the words of Scripture. It does not say you will not experience the second death. Of course they won't experience the second death. The second death is the eternal death. It's the eternal judgment. It's hell, right? That's what Revelation 21.8 says. It's the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. That's the second death. We saw in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus has the keys of death and hell. Believers in Jesus Christ never experience 
the second death. It doesn't say they won't experience the second death. It says they won't be hurt of the second death. Number one, it means it's the end of pain. It's the end of pain. We can only imagine. We can only imagine and our imaginations fall short of what these faithful brothers and sisters went through. Even reading it is not enough. But Jesus Christ says to them, you that overcome, there's no more hurt for you. It's the end of pain. You've suffered enough. There's a limit. That's a comfort. That's a comfort. But I want you to think about something, church. For them, there'll be no pain at the second death. That's a particular reward. That's a particular thing that they get. You know what that made me think? That this second death thing, although we won't experience it for ourselves, it might be a little painful. It might be a little painful for some of us watching the people that we've known, the people that we love, the people that we never bothered to walk across the street and tell about Jesus Christ be cast into eternal torments and flames. And we realize we did not do everything possible to rescue them from the flames. I'm going to tell you that the believers in Smyrna, they did everything possible that even watching all of that, there's no regret and there's no pain for them. They left it all on the field, literally. So, it's the end of pain. One last thing, and I think this is a comfort. It's the beginning of payback. It's the beginning of payback. Listen, don't be so pious and don't kid yourself. God said and warned in Galatians 6, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Can you think of the things these emperors sowed? For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And I got to think, there just must be some sort of a comfort for the Smyrna believers to watch all their persecutors end up getting their just reward for the punishment and the suffering that they inflicted on everybody else. Don't you know that it's a comfort to the families of victims of heinous crimes to see the law catch the perpetrator and punish him to the full extent of the law? Well, how is this going to apply to my life today? Let's wrap this up. Verse 11 says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I think the Lord wants to say something to us. So without question, you could ask yourself this question. Are, are, you, are you suffering persecution? Now, in the context of what we're looking at, please understand, if you are suffering, we all suffer from time to time, but are you suffering persecution because you are a Christian, because you are taking a stand boldly for the gospel. Peter talks about people who suffer for their own foolishness. We're not talking about that. We're talking about suffering for standing for the Lord. 
I think there's something we can all do. And so I put this sentence in your notes just so that you'd have it in front of you. Here's something we can all do today as a result of what we've learned. Stop standing up for yourself and working to put others down. Rather, stand up for Jesus and lay yourself down for the gospel. You see, the idea of willingly laying yourself down, willingly dying to yourself, you know what that's going to do? That's going to provide for you a crown also. Thank the Lord we don't live in this time of history. But we are not without opportunity to lay our lives down as well. You may never be called upon to die for Jesus. Will you die to yourself and live for him? James chapter 1 and verse number 12, you have to see this. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the, oh, there it is, the crown of life. Wait, I thought that was the martyr's crown. It is. I thought that was the crown given to people who were faithful unto death. It is. I'm never called upon to die physically. I am called upon to die to my selfish desires every single day. And if I do a good job of it today, I'm still going to wake up tomorrow with more selfish desires. You know what you can do, church? You know how you can apply this today? Quit standing up for yourself and your rights. And in order to do so, you put everybody else down. How about you stand up for Jesus? Everybody can do that. And lay yourself down willingly. Listen, y'all. These brothers and sisters that we read a little bit about from the time of Smyrna, these are our family. These are our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. You'll meet them one day. Be proud of them. But maybe more so, make them proud of you. Make them proud of you by standing up for Jesus now. That's been a long day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, let me encourage you. Please, whatever God would have you to do, will you do that today? Will you respond to him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is kind of a heavy load today. And we're just reading words on paper, sitting in air-conditioned comfort, wearing nice clothes. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for our selfishness. Forgive us, Father, where we've lost sight of the reality of the warfare. It's no different. It's just deceived so many of us into thinking we're okay. We're not okay. You're the only one that's okay. And we need to stand for you. Please, Lord Jesus, give us courage. Help us to realize that whatever this world has to throw at us, it's nothing because you are the first and the last. You were dead but are alive. And we will be too. So whatever happens to us, however it plays out for us, whatever it means to us to count the cost, Lord, we count it right now afresh. And we lay it at your feet. We pray that somehow, some way, that you might find our lives to be tried and proven to be overcomers. And Lord, we do desperately want that kind of revival, and I know that we really don't want that kind of persecution. But whatever you would allow, 
we will humbly and gratefully accept because we love you that much and you're worthy. I pray, Lord, for anyone who's here, whatever they have to do to get right with you, maybe they need to confess their sins and get saved, maybe they need to confess their carnality and start today living for you. Whatever it might be, I pray that we do it in the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray in Christ's name, amen.